0: I have entitled this Living by the Law of Love, and uh, one of our team came in this morning and said, wow, I saw your little subtitle, Genuine Love is Never Wrong. That got their attention. And the reason for it is because we live in a world that has reshaped the idea of love in all kinds of ways. And you might question the reality of that whole idea is that love is never wrong because, boy, you've been through relationships where you thought love was there and it went terrible. Uh, we've been in situations where marriages thought that people loved one another and it hasn't worked out so well. We've had friendships where love just thought we thought was there but seemed to crumble and disintegrate under the pressure of expectations and demands that people had on one another. And, and we talk about love, but it seems like an, uh, an idealistic, romantic idea that we talk about it, but it's, it's hard to see where that hits the, the, the real realities of life. Because we've been betrayed so often and and we've been disappointed and our hopes have been dashed. And and yet, the reality is, if you look at a passage, for instance, like 1 Corinthians 13, it gives us this amazing portrait of love. We're not going to go through all of it now. In fact, we'll come back to that at the end of the service. But it makes this very profound statement at the beginning of verse 8 where it says, Love never fails. Or another way that you might think about it is love never ends, it's enduring. And if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, there's all kinds of statements there that describe the nature of love. And you might say, boy, I wish I knew that love. Because that doesn't seem to be part of my experience. Not only do I struggle at times on feeling love, but I'm not sure how to communicate it to the people around me. I'm not even quite sure at times that I know how to communicate this love back to God that he's shown us. And yet, this is the kind of love that God wants us to live by. And it has to be a love that is not only durable, but it it has the stamina to endure the crucibles and challenges of life. Otherwise, it just becomes a romantic idea that that doesn't make any difference in the way we live. And 1 Corinthians comes and says, love love never ends, love never fails. But we're going to come to a passage in Romans chapter 13 where we, it's basically going to say L- love is never wrong. And what I mean by that is the statement when we come into chapter 13 that says love never wrongs a neighbor. It never does. And you might question both of those statements because you're saying, listen, I've got people that have loved me that I'm now estranged to, that I don't want to even see or talk to them because I thought they loved me, but they didn't act in a loving way. Now, you and I all realize, obviously, the reality of life is that God's life in all of its pristine purity and holiness and empowerment by the Spirit of God is, is absolutely necessary for us to experience that love. We can never manufacture it on our own. We can never create it on our own. We can't control it. It's it's really a submission to the love that God has poured into our hearts and allowing it to reshape my attitudes and beliefs and my perspective of other people. And as we sort of dip our toe into this text, uh, it's kind of like one of these texts where you've got to sort of buckle up and hopefully you can keep up with it, but it challenges us in very profound ways about the whole concept of love. I could spend a long time saying, you know, we've taken love and we've said, now love also means acceptance. And that's not what it means in the scriptures. We, We can talk about love and we can redefine it according to my emotions and my romantic ideas that I pull from Hallmark. Or we can build it upon, well, if God really loves me, then this is what I think God should be doing. And the reason why we don't often experience this kind of love, the empowerment, the sustainability, the durability of agape love is because we have a tendency to corrupt it because we reshape it into what we want it to be rather than what Christ intended it to be. And so as we think about this, I want to begin in Romans chapter 13, reading eight through 10, and then stepping into this reality of what we're trying to deal with. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the statement Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Some will put it even more strongly Love never wrongs a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And if there's no other question I want to ask you, it's simply this this morning. Are you living empowered by that kind of love for people? We can say that we love people. I I, uh, have these conversations with people. We talk about mission and how do we love our neighbors. And people say, well, I love my neighbors. And I say, well, so, so how have you loved them? Oh, well, I never see them, but I love them. And it's easy to get into that mode is, is that we think the absence of conflict means that we love people. And, and so as we dip our toe into this passage, I, I want to remind you of it. We discover this in parenting too. Love is, can be very confusing to us. Uh, I was reading an article this week where the Vancouver province reported a story of the New York mad mother. Mrs. Williams Morris Friday paid a $55 traffic fine, which obviously was some time ago, Uh, for her 18 year old son uh, in court and she paid it then turned around and smacked her son Uh, the magistrate Charles Solomon startled at this little maneuver by the mom and then kind of suddenly caught himself and gave a little grin and said ma'am I'm going to reduce the fine by ten dollars and her response to him is well that's nothing wait till I get home There are epigrams about a parent's love for a child, a lot of it related to discipline. Everything else in the modern home is now controlled by the flick of a switch. Why can't our children be that way? Homer Phillips made the statement, the time to start correcting the children is before they start correcting you. Duke of Wellington said, the thing that impresses me the most about America is the way parents obey their children. And I want to propose to you that, that genuine agape love is never wrong. It never fails. The problem is, is that that love has to operate in broken, dysfunctional vessels who often misshape and rework and toxify that love so that we rebuild that love to fit our paradigm in what we want rather than what God calls us to be and do. And yet one of the greatest resources that God has given to us is not just the concept of love but the spirit of love indwelling in our hearts and minds to teach us and instruct us how to submit to how he cultivates that love in us even in the most difficult challenges of life. And so I want to walk you through some of the things that he talks about here and I want to start with the priority of love that he tells us that love fulfills the God of God's law. Love is really our greatest debt. It's kind of interesting, there's actually what I would call a triple negative here. You'd think he'd talk about positive, like 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is all these flowery things, but he doesn't do that. He actually starts with a, actually a double negative. It literally says, oh no one, not one thing, if not to love one another. So there's really three negatives that are wrapped into this particular text, that's why I call it triple negative. He's trying to make his point that literally, that says, this is a command. This is an imperative. This is what God calls us to be and do, and at the forefront of our activity, especially in relationship to one another in the world, he says, we're to love one another. The the double negative simply just reinforces the force of the command, so he's, he's putting it negatively, but he's trying to emphasize how critical and important love is. And then when he simply puts this, if not, the word is accept, sometimes uh, it'll be but, the one debt that we owe to people around us as believers is to love them. In one sense it's saying, listen, we don't have an option. If we have any indebtedness to one another, it doesn't matter where you've come from, your walk of life, how messed up you are, God calls us that the debt that we owe to one another is to love one another. It is a a powerful statement about people who come from all different walks of life in a culture that is tearing itself apart is that if there's any place that ought to be a shining light to demonstrate the love of God in the most tangible and practical way possible ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. And it ought to be overflowing in a way that it literally all by itself ought to attract people because they are starving to be loved. I think I heard the statistics this year is that there's more suicides this year than we've seen in 10 years. Because people don't feel loved. They don't feel like their life has any significance. They're struggling with sense of identity and purpose and value and significance. And it's not the issue that you and I should have this all figured out and nothing should faze us, but God gives us the resource of knowing that you and I are deeply loved by God. And if you lose sight of that, you're going to lose sight of life. And in the heart of this we're discovered, for instance, 1 Peter. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, and here's the agape love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And because you put faith and trust in this Jesus who sacrificed his life from us, God gives you a resource that you will never have on your own efforts, that you will never discover anywhere in the world is that God is giving us not only the experience of his love, but the capacity through his indwelling spirit to love when it's way beyond our capacity on our own. And yet we struggle with it. We're not quite sure at times whether we should be loving or hating. We have such emotional turmoil in our life. We don't know whether to hate people or to love them. We don't know whether we'd have animosity or compassion. And if we get too far off the center of the gospel, we can get lost trying to figure out life apart from God's love. And there is nothing that you will discover that will be more frustrating than a Christian who doesn't know how to love. The priority of this love and let me define it for you just briefly. I build it a lot off John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So to me, the pattern, the analogical pattern there is that love, God's love, is willing to sacrifice what is most precious to itself in order to respond to the deepest needs of others. I know we don't like the word sacrifice, but that's exactly what God did. He sacrificed Christ, his only begotten. I know that slams against often American Christianity. We like our rights. We like our privileges. And, and sacrifice is not the hallmark of often our conversations. There's a, but this is the statement that comes out of Romans chapter 13. And if you look at the text, it's fascinating how it's worded. Oh, no, uh, not one thing to anyone except to love one another... For, um, sorry, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled it. Now there's a little nuance here, and this is just so you can help see the scope of what Paul's talking about. If you look at like a New American Standard, it says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. ESV says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. There's two words in Greek that talk about another. Uh, One word, and it's not used here, the word for another means another of the same kind. So if, if uh, someone says, well, here comes another disciple and that happened to be a disciple of Jesus along with the rest of them, that would be another disciple of the same kind. They're all committed to Christ and following him. So if they're coming in the bo- a boat and they were sailing over and someone says, there's another disciple, without clarifying it, they would probably mean another disciple of Jesus. But the other word that's used here means another of a different kind. So there's different passages, like in, for instance, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, it talks about one was a Pharisee going up to the temple to pray, and the other a tax-gatherer. So he's different than the first one. One's a Pharisee, the one's different from him because he's a tax-gatherer. And so the statement really here is, is that the reason why one uses the word neighbor is because when Paul says you need to love one another, he's clearly thinking about believers loving one another, But then when he says uh, this whole idea here, for he who loves another is really the term for people that are not like them, that are different than them. So clearly he hasn't focused this love that we ought to have as believers, but he's also extending it to people that live in the world, that aren't like us, that are different, that don't share the same faith. And, And so he's expanding this to say, listen, we ought to have a deep powerful priority to love one another regardless of our dysfunction and our brokenness. But that love is the same love that ought to be a love that we express to people in the world. That even if they're different, even if they don't share the same faith, they don't share the same convictions, they don't share the same morality, they don't share the same principles that, are trying to, that we use to guide our life, that's the same love that we're to show to them. Jay Dunn says it this way, perhaps it would be best to say that Paul has fellow believers particularly in view, but not in an exclusive way. Now why is that important? Well, because when we start doing it, it's sometimes easy to love the people that love us. Uh, That's what Jesus said. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus explains this whole statement of loving your neighbor, but look at the context. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, those who are... uh, for the Jews, that would have been other Jews, and hate your enemy. You know, isn't it interesting how the Jews take the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself, and they've added a piece to it. Love your neighbor, those who love you, but hate your enemy. They, they've, they've added it. They, they do at times what we do. I'll love the people that love me, but those that act badly towards me, yeah, I think it's okay to hate hate that because we're supposed to hate evil and they're acting in an evil way as far as I'm concerned so I can hate them. Whatever logic you use in order to justify that, they've manufactured a different kind of love and Jesus says, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you want to act like God in the way he's loved you, Don't just love the people that love you, that's basically the next statement. If you just love those who love you, big deal. Animals will do that. Really, Anybody will do that. If someone loves and gives attention to them, they'll love them. But he's saying, listen, if you love your enemies, then you're really acting in a way that God loves us. And so he raises the bar in this sense of love, and Paul's saying, listen, don't owe anybody anything, but love one another and, and love your neighbor. Love those who are like you and love you, but love those who are different and even your enemies, because that's when you will truly reflect and show the love that God has shown to us. The principle of love is simply this. That love fulfills the law, and the, ob- the objectivity of love is interesting because he immediately goes in and he starts giving a bunch of negative commands. I don't know why he does that. I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone to 1 Corinthians 13 and says, listen, what you need to do if you're going to love one another is be kind, be patient, be enduring, bear all things, believes all things. That, that's, that's the way I would have done it, but he does it. He, he actually talks to these people, and he talks about fulfilling the law, and we'll get to the negative commands in a minute. But what he tells me when he says it fulfills the law, and there's a lot of different ways we can look at this, is that God's love for Christians needs to be congruent. It needs to be equal to the idea of fulfilling the law. The reason I say that is what I've already mentioned, is that love, this kind of love, fulfills the law, not our intuitions, or our instincts. See, we can reshape God's love to say, well, I want I think I love someone or something, but if it, if, it doesn't, if it isn't consistent with God's word, then it's not love anymore, it's not this kind of love. And he'll show, we'll show you that in a minute. Love is the fullest expression of the law, not our emotional attractions. The issue is love is not that it's faithful to how I feel, it's, it's faithful to God's word. It won't contradict God's word. Love fulfills the spirit of the law, not our personal hopes, dreams, or ambitions. That's when we start reshaping God's love that if God really loves me, He'll give me what I want. If God really loves me, why would I be going through difficult times? We start questioning His love towards us when He's not cooperating and giving us the desires of our heart. Love is the perfect manifestation of the law, not our personal convictions. It's amazing how Christians can develop convictions and it's literally, well, if you love me and you love God, you're going to do exactly what I think you should do. And my response to that is, I don't remember God dying and putting you in charge. But that's exactly what happens. We start defining what love looks like for ourselves because we think our convictions are perfectly in line with God's heart. There's others here. Love will honor God's revelation, not our interpretation of it. A lot of that going on these days. People reinterpreting the scriptures to say that love is a lot different than what the Bible, I believe, says. But this love is always going to be consistent with God's word. So then, it's not just the objectivity of love, but the obedience of love. He gives us four negative commands. And I wish we had time to go through all these. I know you're glad we don't, but... But I do want to point to it so you know. The four negative commands, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's, that's kind of one of the painful experiences of some people's lives. Oftentimes it gets defined, the reason why adultery is because there's problems. But ultimately what it comes down to is there's, this love isn't fueling this relationship and the And the danger is is that the, when that happens, the person thinks that they can find love other places, and that's not this love. And so we can easily redefine love to say, "Hey, I, I've had people say this. Don't I deserve to be happy?" And my response is always no. I did, I told somebody that one time. They were going through some stuff like this and they said, don't we deserve to be happy? And I said, no, and they all looked at me like, what? Because when your love and happiness redefines and violates what God's word says, then you're not loving the way God loves we're not allowing his love to fuel us. We've defaulted to my own self-interest and I'm desperately trying to find worth and identity and value because I don't trust that God's love is giving it to me. So I'm gonna go find it on my own and I'm gonna redefine what love is. You shall not murder. Some of you are going, oh good, I <sighs> haven't done that one so I don't have to worry about that. Well, not quite. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But Jesus takes it a step further because he looks at the heart, not just the outward action. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool should be akin for us saying you're an idiot or we condemn or criticize them shall be liable to the hell of fire. Because the same anger that prods us to do simple things that we think are okay, that we give ourselves permission to do, where it comes to criticizing and condemning and ridiculing and being angry with other people, is the same thing that drives people to do murder. Now, we may not take it that far, but Jesus seems to think there's a relevance here. But the point here is, is, is not how do I manage anger. The the issue is, that's when a person is angry, when a person is ridiculing and condemning, there's a lack of God's love there. That love is not what's driving their life, it's anger or something else. And we know we've all been on both sides of that, where we've dished it out and we've been recipients of people's anger. And Jesus warns us that It's not a healthy thing to do. You shall not steal. It's the idea of taking things secretly that belong to someone else in the simplest definition. I was talking to someone this week who was telling me that they were at a ministry place and someone broke into their car and took their wallet and spent their money and lost their driver's license and social security card. It's staggering how much people think they can just help themselves to other people's stuff. It's just, it's amazing to me. And yet people do it all the time. You shall not covet to desire that which belongs to someone else. Exodus makes this clear. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, the male servants, female servants, ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. We'd have to translate that into his dog, his Ferrari, their second home, their vacation place. Whatever it is, do the translation. But what what he's doing is he's saying, love will never do this stuff. And if, and if you think you're loving something or loving someone and it's running over these kinds of commands, then it's not love. It it's might be lust, it might be selfishness, it might be narcissism, but it's not agape love. And we sometimes need to get really honest with our own heart because when we get into these turmoils where we're angry and we're doing all this stuff, it's very easy to blame everything and anything else. And there's lots of reasons for why we should we get angry. I, we can't help but do that. But the issue ultimately comes down to I can't love this person. I've stopped loving this person. I'm not going to love this person. And so he, he tries to powerfully emphasize the significance of love to say, listen, if you're running over God's truth and whatever you're claiming to be love, it's not love. And, and so as we moves through this, this principle and obedience of love tells us that the inher- the, it's sort of inherent within the nature of love to conform and be consistent with God's word. I, he also says, hey, if there's any other command, well, did, did he miss any? Well, it's interesting. He only picked four commands out of the Ten Commandments. He missed all the ones in relationship to God, which he's probably spent 12 chapters already kind of establishing that God's in the picture, and i would propose to you that if we have trouble loving other people we're going to have trouble loving god we either have trouble accepting god's love or we're having trouble taking allowing god's love to help us love other people because if there's a problem on this level there's some problem this level and so as he moves through this thing he didn't talk about honoring your father and mother he didn't talk about you shall not bear false witness, but he said if there's any other kind of command which would include those, if you're not committed to doing it, then you're not loving. I don't know how many kids we have here, but if you don't obey and honor your parents, oh, we're all kids kind of, aren't we? If, if you refuse to honor your parents because they're stupid and they're fools and you're angry at them, then Whatever else it says, regardless of how justified, you don't have the capacity to love them because it tells us we're to honor our parents. We're not to tell lies and gossip about other people and bear false witness about what they're doing because that activity doesn't show love. And so, the, so he says, if there's any other kind of command, it's fulfilled. And the essential nature is, uh, of this thing is he comes back and he's going to say, well, it's all captured in this one idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. And the essential nature of this command is love. Romans 5:10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Why is this love so important? Because one of the things we often forget is that at some point in life, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, but if we look at all of humanity, Romans 5 makes it really clear that all of humanity is ungodly and we're sinners and we're enemies of God in our normal state. We are not basically good enough to be accepted by God when we die. Sometimes the problem is we think we're basically good enough. And if you haven't got a long train wreck of a record in your life about doing a lot of horrible, bad, evil things and you've got a kind of a squeaky clean kind of life where I didn't do drugs and didn't sleep around and didn't do that kind of stuff, we kind of think we're, a, it's very easy to get into a mode like, yeah, I'm, not like, I'm, the, I'm kind of the Pharisee. I'm not like, thanks Lord that I'm not like them. And it's easy to convince ourselves that I've kind of given God a little better gift than he got with that one because I don't have as much stuff to deal with. And so the essential nature of this command is to love. What's so important about this is that when you go back to Matthew 5, you'll discover that the way God loves us is is that he says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to follow the example of Christ, if you really want to, to emulate and conquer the brokenness in your own life and the brokenness in somebody else's life and the dysfunction in the way they live and the way they treat you, the way Jesus endured unjust suffering, is that we need to allow that the greatest debt that we owe one another is to love. Love not only covers a multitude of sins, but it triumphs over the greatest brokenness in my own life, and it triumphs over the dysfunction in other people's lives. And if we want to be perfect in the sense that we're loving in exactly the way God has loved us, we will love our enemies and those who persecute us. And we will pray for those who hate us. Because anything short of that becomes a dysfunction in my understanding of God's love. And I'll tell you, one of the things where I think we all need to start is simply this idea is that even though I've accepted Jesus into my heart and I'm learning to do it, there's sometimes so much dysfunction in our own life because we felt unloved and we felt valueless and we felt disconnected from people. And we feel like we've been run through the ringer and people have treated us and made fun of us and mocked us and I grew up with this terrible self-image. Is The first and foremost issue for all of us is can I really accept God's love in my own life? Am I really willing to surrender to it and say, God, I feel worthless, I don't think I can make a difference, I'm no good, I can't be part of a community, I could never serve you well? Is that we've gotta reject the lies that we've taught ourselves and that others have communicated to us and that Satan keeps rerunning in our heart and mind to say you're worthless and we need to say, God, I'm gonna surrender my life to you and I'm gonna believe that I'm greatly loved because I don't want to dishonor the sacrifice of Christ that he made for me. Because the danger is, is if we keep going around, unloving ourselves, we dishonor the sacrifice. We say say to God, this isn't good enough because I know I'm still worthless. This isn't good enough. Your demonstration, it's not good enough because I still feel worthless. And what we end up doing, in one sense, to put it in rude terms, is spitting in God's face and saying, I don't care how much you think you have loved me, that's not good enough because I still feel worthless. And the issue is, I won't give up my self-control and surrender to God and say, God, I may feel worthless, you need to change the feelings in my heart and the dysfunction in my mind that keeps telling me these things and I'm gonna reject those as lies and I want to embrace the reality that I'm secure in Christ, I'm a child of God, I'm forgiven my sin. Because if you can't accept God's love, it'll be impossible for you to love people when they become your enemy. It'll be impossible to love people so that we avoid things like adultery. It'll be impossible to not have anger in our heart when people do unjust things to us because we don't know how to accept God's love. We will steal and rob and covet because we don't understand the depths of God's love for us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to dishonor the, the, this amazing, costly sacrifice where he shed his blood for you and me, and then turn around and say, uh, yeah, nice try, God, I'm not buying it. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? I'm, I'm going to walk you through that to finish because it, it does the same thing. It talks about the positive qualities of love, but it also talks about what love is not, and it's the same kind of thing that Paul did in Romans 13. Paul spent most of his time saying, listen, if you wanna understand love, it fulfills the law, and you gotta remember that it won't violate these things, because if it does, then it's not God's love, no matter how much you wanna justify it. Just listen to the words here, and. I want you to say, have you really understood God's love for you this way? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am am nothing. If I give all away, or if I give away all I have, and if I've delivered up my body to be burned but not have love, I gain nothing. I'm not sure I can communicate it to you well enough this morning, but I, I hope that you can get a sense that if we don't understand this agape love and surrender to it in our own life and allow the Spirit of God to change our heart that we can love way beyond what our own capacity is. We could spend our whole life doing great things for God that count for nothing because we don't know how to love. And then he goes into this list. Love is patient and kind. Why? Because God is so patient and kind with us. But then notice how many negatives he puts in following it. Love does not envy or boast. Now, it might be self-love that's driving that, but it's not agape love. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And you're gonna say, well, That's just kind of God's idealistic romantic love about what it possibly could do, but that is not achievable. Good luck with that. If that's your posture, good luck. I'd rather die in the process of saying that's what God can do to change me than just give up and say it's not possible. Nothing more miserable than a Christian who can't discover the love of God and know how to show it to others. Let me ask you these questions. Do you have trouble showing love to somebody right now? Family member? Close friend? Spouse? You're getting irritable because... Nagging the ears off you. Friend, a coworker, Are you angry with someone in your life? Have you reacted to someone by insulting them because you believe they've acted selfishly? Have you criticized or condemned someone because you think they're foolish or just plain stupid? Do you have trouble loving your neighbor? Do you have trouble loving your enemy? Do you have trouble loving those who hate you? Gary Small in his book DNA of Relationships says, you know what? Nobody can make us feel or do anything that we don't allow them permission to do. That God in his great love gives us the capacity in a sense to be self-contained in the refuge of the presence of the Spirit of God, that he's the one that's supposed to control my life and my reactions and my health and my spirit and my emotions. And when I allow other people to manipulate my life by what they do, I've given control over to them, not to the Spirit of God. And I want to encourage you that at times, especially in the year that we've had with COVID, with loss of jobs, with change of venues, with the tensions of finances, with the problem of work, or not having it, it's really easy to come to the end of our rope. And the last thing that we often want to do is love people because we're feeling crushed to death under the weight of life. And for many of us, the clarion call to God is, why doesn't somebody love me? And I think God's response to us is, dear child, I already have And I always will. And if it doesn't start with his love in our own heart and spirit, if you'll excuse the expression, life can end up being a living hell simply because we don't understand his love. And we won't allow that to shape the way we treat others.